Haraka haraka haina baraka. Um, good morning, everyone. Yeah, um, Karibu Tena again, uh, if you're joining us for the first time or if you're joining us online, as you heard, my name is Cephas. Um, I'm one of the team of the leaders of One Tribe. Uh, we're led by a team of elders, uh, of which um, Simba is one of them and Sean, who was playing bass. And we've also got um, Bonisi, who is currently on sabbatical in the UK. Um, thanks for joining us. And I think uh, today is a great Sunday for you to join us. Uh, because we are in the second part of uh, this four-part series as we're also uh, counting down uh, to Election Day. And uh, last week I kicked off the series and uh, I was attempting to answer the question, where is God in our politics? And uh, we looked at the Old Testament book of Habakkuk and the answer that I tried to give uh, was that, hey, God is right here overseeing it. And uh, just as I've uh, gone through the past week, there have been a few encouraging things uh, that I've seen. I'm not sure if anyone else followed the debate of the running mates. Um, I just got a snippet of it online. I thought, wow, uh, from the days of one-party state, uh, when no one did say anything against the president, now we've got these guys getting up, declaring their wealth, uh, millions of shillings, uh, but that wasn't the point. And um, also, I was following the news and I just saw the story of the verdict in this case of the murder of Willie Kimani and his uh, driver and his uh, client. And just thinking, yeah, it's, it's taken six years, but it's progress uh, that we've got a verdict in that. And so whilst Kenya is not heaven on earth, I think we have to acknowledge the positive change. Uh, looking back three generations uh, to where we are now, I think we could say that God has taken us somewhere. And uh, if we are to look forward three generations, I'm full of hope for where God is taking in this nation when it comes to the application of justice, when it comes to transparency in the political system, when it comes to the growth of the economy, innovation among our young people. I'm really hopeful for what God is doing in the nation of Kenya. And so before I begin this morning, I'd like us just to take a moment to pray, uh, just to thank God for where he's brought us from as a nation, and also pray into where God is taking us. I'm just going to give us a moment, I'll be silent, and I just want to invite you um, to pray with me, and then I'll pray and get into today's message. Dear Father, we, I remember the opening words of Scripture that talk about how you, crea you created the heavens and the earth and how your spirit was hovering over the face of the deep and you spoke and you brought order. And Lord, we thank you that you are hovering over the nation of Kenya. Thank you that your word still brings order. Your word still has creative power. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that your word would order our lives, that your spirit would work in our hearts. Even as we sang, 
Lord, that we are thirsty for your work in our lives. We are thirsty for your work in our nation. We thank you for the evidence of your grace in Kenya. We thank you for where you've brought this nation from. We thank you that the politics of Kenya is not just a random occurrence. It's, it's, it's not just the effects of people, but also your hand is at work for your purposes. And Lord, we want to ask that you'd give us hope as we look ahead, that we would not just look ahead to August 9, but would look ahead into the future and see that you are concerned for this great nation, that you're doing a work that will be for generations. And so we just ask that you would fulfill your purposes in our nation. And Lord, would we be part of that? Would we be your instruments? Amen. Having acknowledged the communal progress that uh, we're making, we still need to face the reality that our politics is still far from perfect. Not only in Kenya, but all across the globe. And you see, the funny thing is that I don't know whether it happens in, in women's gatherings. Whenever men gather and we talk, whether it's over Nyamachoma, whether it's having a drink, whether it's watching a game of soccer, we solve the problems in Kenya and we, we solve the Ukrainian crisis. We solve the problems of the world. And in fact, if, if you're to approach anyone on the street, They'll tell you, you know what, the, the political problems that we have, the, the economic problems that we have, the solution is simple. We need to do A, B, C, D. And when, when we're in this political season, every campaigner, every politician, every political party comes with a manifesto, and basically what the manifesto is saying is, hey, these are the problems that we have. Never mind whether they've been in government for 10, 20 years, they're still able to say, no, these are the problems and these are the solutions. And all you need to do is get me into that position and I will solve those problems. But no sooner do we have fresh blood, new ideas in those positions, do we discover that we still have problems. Our politics is still out of sync. It's still out of joint. Why is that? The answer is that, well, we're engaged in politics in a fallen world. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want, to, I want us to look together at what it means for us to be engaged in politics in a fallen world then I want to ask the question, or I want us to explore whether God is doing anything about that or has done anything about that. Then finally, if the answer is God has done or is doing something about it, I want us to look at what it means for us as followers of Jesus. What are the practical implications of living and engaging, firstly in politics, 
and finally in the rest of life in a fallen world. So if you have your Bible, please would you turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. And to give some continuity from where we began last week and the reading that we had, we we saw that as the uh, Habakkuk was complaining to God during his historical context, God has spoken to him and said, hey, I'm going to intervene in the situation of Judah by bringing the dreaded Babylonians. And just as God had spoken, the Babylonians came, And in 605 BC or thereabouts, they took away some captives. And one of them was a young Daniel, maybe in his pre-teens. If we have any pre-teens, I can see a few here. Or teens. They took him away in captivity to serve in Babylon. And by the time we are getting into the passage that we are reading today, Daniel has been in Babylon for over 50 years, serving in the civil service of the Babylonian regime under various disreputable titles, such as among the magicians and sorcerers and wise men, and at times having headship over that group. But if you'd like to capture how Daniel and the rest of the Jews or Israelites felt, We just have to look at Psalm 137, a song which opens with these lines. By the rivers of Babylon, we sit down and weep when we remember Zion. So Daniel, for 50 years, has experienced this pain, the pain of living in a fallen world, the pain of experiencing politics in a fallen world. And I just want to say this morning that scripture, the church, the gospel is, is not for people whose lives are all going so smoothly, swimmingly. You know, we come, we sing happy songs, and we raise our hands, and it looks like, hey, everything is going so well. Everybody must be having a good life. Actually, whether you're on a high or on a low, whether you can identify with weeping for 50 decades, I mean, for 50 years, Scripture The church, the gospel, has something for you. But what we see, what we're going to see today is that God was working out a long-range plan. God is working out a long-range plan in our world. God is working out a long-range plan in Kenya. He's working out a long-range plan in your life. And so what we're going to do in a moment Before we read the text, we're going to watch a a video that gives a bit of biblical context to the passage, and then I'm going to get into the text. So if we can get the video up. If you read the New Testament, you'll notice that the most common title people use to describe Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah. But surprisingly, Jesus almost never used that word to describe himself. Instead, he called himself the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What does that mean? 
Well, the phrase comes from an important chapter in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel was an Israelite prisoner of war who was forced to live in the empire of Babylon and work for the prideful, violent king who destroyed his home. That sounds horrible. And while he was living and working in Babylon, Daniel had this crazy prophetic dream. You ready for it? I'm ready. He saw four beasts crawling out of a dark sea, hybrid monster-like animals, each scarier than the one before. And the fourth beast is so mutant, there's nothing to compare it to. And it's violent, leaving death and destruction in its wake. What in the world is this about? Well, he's told that these beasts symbolize violent, prideful kings and their empires. Oh, like the one Daniel's enslaved to. Yeah, and these creatures might seem random to you, but these images are developing an important biblical theme. How humans are these remarkable creatures capable of doing great good and horrible evil. How we can behave like animals. Right. Look at the first pages of the Bible. God creates the beasts of the field and humans together, all from the dust. But then the humans are set apart and given a royal task of being God's image. So humans are like the animals, but called to become much more. Yeah, they're to be God's representatives on earth, ruling on his behalf like kings and queens. But keep reading, and the humans are deceived by a beast who says that they could be more than just God's partners. Yeah, that they could rule the world on their own terms, which sounds good to them. But God knows this will be a disaster. And so he expels the humans to the realm of the beasts. The partnership is lost. But God makes a promise that one day a human will be born who won't give in to the beast. Rather, he'll overcome and strike the beast while being struck by it. Okay, so for the rest of the biblical story, we're waiting for that human. But instead, in story after story, we find people acting like beasts. Yeah, like in the next story about Cain, who's jealous and angry at his brother Abel. God warns Cain that he's facing a beastly urge called sin, a dark, mysterious kind of evil that consumes humans. But God says that Cain can rule the beast if he chooses. But he doesn't rule the beast. He lets this urge devour him, and he becomes a beast. And then after this, Cain's children spread their animal-like violence, and it leads to the founding of a whole civilization known for its beastly pride, the city of Babylon. Okay, Babylon. So fast forward, this is where Daniel is enslaved, having this bizarro dream. Exactly. Now, watch what happens next in Daniel's dream. He sees into God's throne room where a court is set up, and God condemns the beast to destruction. That's great. And then Daniel sees that there's actually more than one divine throne. Oh, right, the throne that humanity left behind. Right. There hasn't been a human who's able to overcome the beast and rule alongside God until now. Daniel sees a figure called the Son of Man, which means a human, and he rides on a cloud up into God's presence and then sits down on the divine throne to rule the world. The partnership's renewed. Yes, and even more, all humanity worships and serves this Son of Man alongside God. Oh, worship? So this is no ordinary human. This is like a God-human. Exactly. And so now you can see why Jesus of Nazareth, when he came onto the scene centuries later, chose this title, the Son of Man, for himself. He was claiming to be that truly human one on a mission to confront the beast. He was tempted to seize power on the beast's terms. But unlike every human before him, Jesus resisted the urge. And then he went about banishing the beast from people's lives, and he was teaching people how to rule the beast instead of being ruled by it. 
Okay, so how do you rule the beast? Well, Jesus did it by giving up his life. Wait, rule the beast by dying? Yes. When Jesus was on trial in a human courtroom and being condemned to death, he said, from this moment on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds. But this is the moment he's about to die. Exactly. From one perspective, the cross looks like a beastly torture device, but Jesus viewed it as his throne. And on this throne, he exposed the subhuman nature of our evil by letting it do its worst, and then he overcame it with his divine life and love. Jesus' execution was his exaltation. So Jesus is the first human to overcome the beast, and as a result, he can partner with God to rule the world. And so now, Jesus is summoning a new humanity into existence, one that can overcome the beast in the same paradoxical way. To rule the beast by dying. And then by discovering that Jesus' life and power can become our life and power. So we can rule the world as God's partners, but Jesus-style, in the power of service, humility, and self-giving love. Okay, great. So now we're going to get into the passage, and I'll... Can you guys hear me? Okay, Daniel 7, I'll start reading from verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs and its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. We'll stop there. So I'm, I'm not going to go into great detail on the exposition of this, but uh, Daniel later on in preceding verses then asks an angel, and kind of the angel explains to him that these beasts represent uh, kings and kingdoms, if you'd like. 
And uh, if you've read Daniel, you'd have seen Daniel chapter 2, where there was also this vision that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had of a great statue uh, with the head and different parts, uh, representing, again, different kings and kingdoms who would be reigning at that time in, in Israel's known world and dominating the people of God. The first was uh, Babylon, and then would come the Medo-Persians, and then would come uh, the Greeks, and then would come the Romans. And what uh, Daniel 2 had promised was that in the days of the fourth kingdom, there was a great stone that came that smashed uh, these uh, the statue and became a great mountain, promising that God himself would establish his kingdom in the days of that fourth kingdom. Uh, but th that's not exactly what I want to talk about today. I want to focus on the relationship of politics and, and, and why it is that we can see that we're doing politics in a fallen world. And so the first point I want to make is that our politics flows out of our fallen human culture or human nature. The video spoke about our beastly nature flowing from how sin this, this deviance, this, this missing the mark, this, this going astray, this rebellion from God affects utterly everything about humanity. It, it affects our, our culture, it affects our music, it affects our art, it affects our economics, it affects the way we do business, it affects our marriages, it affects our mental health, it affects utterly everything about our lives and also affects our politics. Daniel, when Daniel sees his vision, he says that I saw the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. And in, in ancient Near Eastern thinking or in the thinking of Daniel and, and those who were around him at that time, the sea was a symbol of chaos. Constantly tossing and turning. Couldn't be controlled. And so you, you hear Isaiah saying that, but the wicked are like a surging sea that is unable to be quiet. Its waves toss up mud and sand. And you wonder, hey, where, 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 where did we get that guy? You know, how, how did that guy become president? How did those guys get in power? Well, the sea has tossed them up. If you've ever been to the coast and you've seen some of the things that come out of the sea, crocs, bottles, seaweed, and this is the way the Bible describes how kingdoms and empires rise, how politics is shaped. It's out of this restless human chaos and wickedness. And earlier, Isaiah says that at that time, the Lord will punish with his destructive, great and powerful sword, Leviathan, the fast-moving serpent, Leviathan, the squirming serpent. He will kill the sea monster. And so in the biblical imagery, not only was the sea this place of great chaos, it was also the place where you had this mystical uh, serpent-like figure, Leviathan, who ruled in the sea. And so it's not just human sin and, and, and our wickedness that tosses up and, and uh, uh, comes out into our politics. It is also the, the enemy, Satan, working, mostly in the shadows, undercover. And then from that, 
we see these beasts emerging. And this, this literature, it's a genre of what's called apocalyptic literature where they would use these symbols and signs which would be able to give a message for the people kind of in the know but was hidden for, for those who didn't understand. And in this symbolism, it's, it's meant to be frightening. When, when you see this lion and, and this bear with, with ribs and, and blood dripping, then you've got this, this fast-moving leopard with, with four heads and then this indescribable creature with iron teeth and trampling people and causing devastation. It's, it's frightening. I think, hey, man, when I, when I look at history, when I, when I look at what's happened in, in countries and nations, I think I can, I can identify. When we hear of, of the devastation of, of kids being bombed, in the Ukraine, we, we hear of, of sex being used as a, 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 a weapon of war. In the DRC, when we, we hear of, of burnt, scorched earth tactics in Tigray, where, where people are in famine or, or Yemen, like, I think I can, I can see the beast. Or when we think about the transatlantic slave trade, think about colonialism and people's hands being chopped off in coffee plantations in the Congo or the concentration camps of, of the Mau Mau or we think of people being killed, put in acid and their teeth later being returned and skulls being returned it's like, hey, what are you doing with human skulls? It's the beast. Or we look at genocide. People killing one another, wiping each other out. Not only in Africa, in, in Europe. Not only in Europe, Think of the Native Americans. We can see the beast. They think, no, no, what we need are liberators. But what we know in the African story is that those who come saying we are the liberators soon become the oppressors. Just think of the great liberation ideologies. Communism. Think of, of the great world revolutions. Let's think of the French Revolution and having a queue of people being put under the guillotine. Think, no, no. I see the beast. Friends, we need to have a realistic view of our politics. And a realistic view is that our politics has been affected by the fall and our sinful nature. And so can, can we expect that restless sea to toss up something better? Can, 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 we, accept, can we expect a, a solution 
from Leviathan-ruled chaos? And I, I talked about how each manifesto, it's, it's almost like a, a declaration, a, a gospel that says, hey, this is the problem and this is the solution and this is how I'm going to take you to the promised land. I'm not going to get into detail of the current manifestos lest you say I'm biased. Two cars in every garage, a chicken in every pot. That's our promised land. So friends, the second point is this. The solution of our politics cannot come from earth. It must come from heaven. And so this is what we see in Daniel's dream. Daniel's dream is his gaze is lifted from this earthly chaotic sea and beasts and is raised to heaven. And this is what he says. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. The stream of fire issued and came out from him and a thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then, looks like his gaze is back on earth, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burnt with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And so Daniel moves us from this fear-conjuring vision of beasts that are bloodthirsty and murderous to an awe-inspiring, worship-eliciting vision. The Ancient of Days steps in. See, that's, that's another name for God, showing his everlasting, eternal nature. The one who lives forever. One, one translation puts it as. And it's in direct contrast to these beasts that have to give way to one another. See, the, the empires will, will come and go. There was a time when, when the British Empire ruled a quarter of the earth. That was just the turn of the 20th century. But empires rise and fall. By the ancient of days, we see him seated on a throne. He's, he's unmoved. There's no competition. Each time you see God appearing in epiphanies in the Bible, he's always seated. He, he's never in a rush. He, he's not in frantic activity. He's seated because he is sovereign. says that his clothing was white as wool, shows his, his purity, his holiness, his perfection, his, his righteousness, his, his spotless. There is no accusation that can stick against our God because he is altogether perfect. 
That's why we sang this morning of, of the goodness of God. You see, God is good not because he does good things, but because that's who he is. It's part of his nature and his character. His hair is white, showing his seniority. There's no one more senior than the ancient of days. You know, when, when, when we have polit political event or a family event, we need to observe protocol and think, have we greeted that person? Have, oh no, do we say karibu again? Karibu tena, karibu tena, just to make sure they, they, they know we appreciate them. But there's no one more senior than our God. There's no one wiser. He's got the wisdom of the ages. It says that he's blazing fire. Speaks of his dynamism. His power. And also how that dynamic power is at work in the world. It says that the, the fire proceeded from his throne. It goes and consumes evil and wickedness. And his throne has got wheels showing how he's everywhere present. He is where he needs to be. There's no situation, there's no realm where we can say, no, 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 God is out of that situation. God is out of the picture. No, God is everywhere in the picture. The ancient of days. All this is summed up in the words from Cleve's sermon several months ago. He's the boss. When I scale mutu, I can say, Mimi ni bazu. Muambie hapana. Mungu ni bazu. Mungu ndiye bazu. For those of you who don't know Swahili. <laughs> I was just saying, you hear someone saying, I am the boss. And you need to tell them, no. God, he is the boss. And I know it's very popular now as the posters are going up. We've got one particular poster in the movie where this guy calls himself Bazoo. And if I have the opportunity... I'll say, hey, please, can you improve the roads in Limuru? <laughs> but God is the boss. And so we see the ancient of days, God stepping in to judge these fallen human political systems, these fallen kings, these fallen empires. And instead, he will establish his own rule, which is from heaven to earth so that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. And this brings me to my third point, which is this. The gospel is not simply a religious message. The gospel is a political message. And if you take nothing else, if you remember nothing else about my message this morning, remember this one thing. The gospel is a political message. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion or improve old religion. Jesus came to be crowned as king. 
Let's read the, verse of the, the rest of the passage. It says that, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. See, a kingdom, this is the right to rule, the authority. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And, and what we've, we've done over the past three centuries since the Enlightenment is to relegate that to saying, no, the way all peoples and nations will serve him is by going to church, you know, doing religious things. And we've turned this message not into this is where history is heading. This is the purpose of what God has created everything for him to rule. He is the final solution of all history. We've turned it into a religious message and saying, hey, this is the way you can have a relationship with God. You, you can have spirituality. But yet what we see in this text is that, no, no. What Jesus came to do was not just give us a way to God, in a sense serving as a priest, but it was to be enthroned as a king. That all peoples, nations, would serve him. It says his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And what's clear in this text is that these verses are given not in the context of religious rituals, but in the context of politics. Because we're seeing kings and kingdoms rising up and falling, and God says, I'm going to set up this kingdom for the Son of Man. Think of one of the great religions of the world. You know, we've got Buddhism here, we've got Islam here, we've got Christianity here. It's just ways of how to get to God. No, this message is a message of a kingdom. Listen to what Isaiah says when he talks about the gospel. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's the gospel. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news. That's the gospel of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the gospel. Your God reigns. Your God is in charge. Your God near Bazoo. You see, the good news for the Israelites wasn't simply that Jesus is coming to erase the temple worship and, and give us an intimate, personal relationship with God. It was that, no, Jesus is coming to demolish the, the world powers that have been ruling over you and to establish the seat of David once again. He is coming to fulfill the covenant of David. Not only will he rule over Israel, but he, through that, they will rule over the world. I was speaking to one Muslim, and he was saying, you know what? The, the problem of the Jews is that they want to rule the world. And now I thought, man, that is a very big topic. I can't dive into that. You see, because actually the story of scripture is that there is a man of Jewish origin. 
who will rule the tribes of the world. But yet it's not the power of the world. His rule is one where he sacrifices himself, where he comes to serve and not be served. It's one where he is strong through weakness. It's one where he is exalted through humility. And so if we're, if we're talking about politics and we're thinking in the way of the world, then it doesn't make sense. That's when we say, hey, no, we need to separate the church and the state. Because obviously, Jesus didn't come to control nuclear bombs and, 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 and direct bullets to his enemies. Instead, he came to make his enemies his friends by dying for them on the cross. And this is how Jesus understood his mission. In Mark 1.15, the first words, when, when we hear him proclaiming, he says, hey, the times are fulfilled. And what he's saying is, what the prophets have been speaking of. And at that time, there was great expectation because of such texts as Daniel, that it's, it's in this time that God is, is going to act. God is going to raise his Messiah, the, this uh, uh, descendant of David who will rule. And Jesus comes proclaiming the times are fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he says, repent. And we've turned that into stop doing bad and start doing good. But what Jesus was saying is, you need to change your whole worldview and believe this good news that your God reigns in me today. And so, we, we get shocked and surprised that the Jews were expecting this great military leader but what's actually shocking is that Jesus was not this great military leader. We, we relegate him into a, into a little religious box where, you know, he's come to help me feel better, do better in my life. He's come, he's come to give me a pick-me-up as my personal Lord and Savior, a.k.a. personal butler. And actually, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior because he is the Lord and the Savior of the whole world. And so putting your faith in him is not just appropriating the blessing of what is done for yourself. It's accepting the truth and the reality of the gospel that he reigns. He is God's final solution for what made people beasts. The gospel is a political message. So while the Jews rightly expected Jesus to be a conqueror, what they, they didn't understand was that Jesus was coming to conquer the power behind the power. Jesus was not just coming to reign over the sea, he was coming to kill Leviathan. Because when Leviathan has been disarmed and destroyed, then people can be delivered to become what God had always intended them to be. And for those who are familiar with the biblical story, just like was spoken in that video, that he did that on the terms of the world by becoming weak and humble, being betrayed by one of his close friends. 
Though innocent, he was condemned as a guilty man. He had an insurrectionist and murderer chosen by the people while he was condemned to die on the cross. He was mocked, spat upon, tortured, forced to carry his own cross and weak with the loss of blood. He, he fell down. He took upon himself our weakness and finally he was nailed. Those nails were, were, were punched into his wrists and into his ankles and gave up his life. And when he seemed defeated, when he seemed at his weakest, that was when his glory shone through and when he was crowned. And so when he rose again and he was sending out his followers, he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth he, he's not talking about ecclesial authority, authority over churches, authority over quiet times, authority over 9 to 10 or 10 to 11.30 on a Sunday. He's saying all authority, authority over Nyayo House, authority over State House, authority over everything in the universe has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. This is what discipleship is about. Establishing the rule and reign of Jesus in the nations. See, the, the solution is not simply Oh, we want a godly person in a place of power in our nation. Actually, the final solution is Jesus himself in person, in the flesh, ruling. And that's God's final solution. The gospel is a political message. So uh, why does this matter today? Why does this matter to you and I? How is it going to affect how we conduct ourselves over these final few days? How is it going to affect how we vote? May I suggest two things. Firstly, before I suggest in a positive way, I want to kind of take away any misconceptions. What I'm, what I'm not suggesting here, and I hope there's no one holding this misconception, is that we should have a military takeover from Christians and and declaring that Jesus is the king of this nation. Forcing people to believe the Bible, follow its teachings. Because that's, that's not the way of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. Jesus didn't force himself on anyone. He didn't take authority by force. Instead, he got authority by serving and dying. And for the people of his kingdom, the followers of Jesus, that is our authority. It's by sacrifice, selflessness, and service. You see, what Jesus said to his followers when he told them he was going to die, and one of his leading followers said, no, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. He said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Leviathan. 
You, you don't have in mind the things of God but the things of man. And then he turned to everyone. He said, this can't just be a private conversation. And he said to all of them, hey, listen to me. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. Because this is the way of Jesus' kingdom. Okay, let, let's, I've got five minutes left, so let's get into the practical applications. So the first thing is, if you're a follower of Jesus, your primary political allegiance is to Jesus. Not Raila, not Ruto, not Wajakoya, not Wahiga. Your primary political allegiance is to Jesus. Listen, you are free to support them or even campaign for them as long as and in as far as it meets with your primary allegiance to Jesus. Because at best, our political leaders are fallen humans. At worst, they can be beasts. So this, this rules out the politics of, of personality cults. I'm, I'm with this person no matter what. You, you align with the political figure as though it's, it's God himself in, in human flesh. This rules out the politics of tribe. Where, where you're saying, hey, I'm looking for that man or that woman who is going to safeguard the interests of my tribe. Because Jesus is king of every tribe. This rules out the politics of trash talking. Where, where you insult and belittle or dehumanize your, your political opponents. As though they, they lack the God-given dignity and image of God. You see, of course you, you can discuss issues, you can have strong debates, of course you can talk about character and past track records, but it must never cross the line of attacking the person. Secondly, if you're a follower of Jesus, let all you do be done to the glory of God. Let it all you do be done to his glory, the glory of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is king of everything. I love what this statesman theologian, Abraham Kuyper, said from Holland. He was a theologian but also became prime minister. He says this, not a square inch in all the universe that Jesus does not say, mine. There's not a square inch of your life. There's not a minute, a second, a millisecond of your life over which Jesus does not say, this is mine. This means that there's, there's no separation between, you know, this is religious, this is non-religious in my life. This is spiritual, this is non-spiritual. 
There are no specialist Christians who say, hey, I'm, I'm in full-time ministry. I, I work for the church or I work in this Christian organization. Because when the apostles were working out the implications of this truth that Jesus is Lord, he is king, they said, do whatever you do, wh- whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This is why they, they spoke into the way married people would behave. You see, the government would be overstepping if it says, we are putting a law that husbands should love their wives. What the government can say is, Simba, don't beat Mutheo. If you do that, you're going to face the long arm of the law. But Jesus, because he rules the heart, he says, Simba, love Mutheo as I loved the church and gave my life for it. This is why the apostles spoke to masters and slaves. They said, no, this is how you are to serve. Why? Because it's not just this is the right way to practice your religion. It's no, no. Everything about your life is now under the king's realm and authority. Listen to what this quote, apparently from Martin Luther, he said, God himself will milk the cows through him whose vocation that is. And Martin Luther, during his time, he was really fighting because there was this separation of monks and and clergy from the laity. And it was like, these guys have a superior spirituality and vocation. And he said, no, every vocation that serves man and glorifies God. Because we are all priests. Jesus has made us into a kingdom of priests. This was meant to be the vocation of Israel and it has become the vocation of the church. And so if if God calls you into politics, maybe you're here, and you're you're running or you're considering running in the future, do it as one whose primary allegiance is to Jesus. Do it with all your heart and do it as unto him. And just say, how, how do I know if I'm called to be a teacher? Are you a teacher now? Whatever your hand finds to do. You know, sometimes we want to overthink and, and over spiritual. I think, what are you doing now? That is what you are called to do now. As long as you are not stealing, extorting, defrauding, and you're adding value into society. So if you're a musician, if you're an HR, if you're a programmer, if you're an environmentalist, therapist, accountant, banker, marketer, administrator, doctor, lawyer, engineer, juakali, artisan, business person, student, do it to the glory of God with all your heart because Jesus rules over all things. You see, now we see his rule by faith. This is what Habakkuk spoke about when he said, the just shall live by faith. 
But then one day we shall see it fully in the new creation. When all things, including creation itself, responds to his rule. And then finally you might say, hey, I'm, I don't know if I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, I want to ask you, where is your hope in this life? Where is your hope in this election season? Are you, are you hoping in a change of government? Are you hoping in a new manifesto? Why don't you put your hope today in God's solution, God's king? The one who says, I came to serve you, not to be served by you. I came to die for you that you might have life. Not only does God call you to put your hope in him, he also calls you to turn away from your rebellion. Turn away from the way you viewed the world. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, what has doing things your own way got you? What will it get you? Just, just look at your life up to now. What has living in rebellion got you to this day? Think you'll make it trusting in your own abilities, trusting in your connections, trusting in your resources, living in this chaotic world ruled by unseen forces. You want to make it on your own? Why would you do that when God freely offers you himself? Say, I will be with you. I will help you. If you do that, you will find peace, joy, and hope that you've never experienced before. I want us to end there and just a reminder of what I've said this morning that our politics is politics in a fallen world that our solution can only come from heaven to earth. And finally, the gospel is a political message. Friends, will you receive Jesus as king of the world? Will you do everything as unto his glory and kingship? Why don't we stand together? I just want to give you and a moment to respond in prayer, and then I'll close in prayer. Maybe you can just respond. Are there areas in your life that you haven't consciously given over to Christ? Have you separated some things and thought, no, no, yeah, this is spiritual. Maybe he's not so concerned about this area of my life, my work my sexuality, my, the way I spend money, my political views, the way I express myself on social media. No, those things, he doesn't really care about them. But this morning we're hearing that Jesus is Lord over everything, including how we use social media. Why don't you just respond to him 
in your own way. Yeah, Lord Jesus, we affirm and agree that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And we submit ourselves to you as those who have put their trust in you. And I pray for any this morning who are also saying, yes, I want to put my trust, that they would meet with you and encounter you in a powerful way through the working of your Holy Spirit. I pray for each person this morning who is looking at an area or areas in their life where they're not fully submitted, that, Lord, you would just cleanse us and remove any, any guilt or any accusation of, of the enemy in those particular areas. And by your Spirit, would you help us to dedicate the entirety of our lives and our existence, everything about us. And Lord, I pray that even right now, as people are doing that around this room, that there is a new sense of authority and affirmation in people's work and livelihood, that you are giving a sense of calling. Yeah, I really believe that at this moment, the Lord is imparting a sense of calling and affirming people who are in different vocations. And that even as you're dedicating yourself, you're going to get a new sense that you are at the place that you need to be. You're also going to get a sense that not only are you where you need to be, but actually you're fulfilling God's purpose and seeing his kingdom established through his work. That is going to affect the way you work. You're going to have a new passion. You're going to have a new zeal. Maybe there are people here, you, you felt yourself really just meandering through your job, wondering what's all this about. And the Lord wants to encourage you that, no, 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 nothing you do in me is hopeless. Nothing you do in me is aimless. Nothing you do in me is purposeless. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning. Would you impart a sense of calling, a sense of worth in our day jobs, in the things that we're doing? And I pray if there are any that you're calling or already in the political scene, that, Lord, they would know their primary allegiance is to you, that they would do whatever they do as to you, and that, Lord, you would strengthen them and empower and encourage them to see your kingdom come wherever they are. Amen.